I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. For the last time, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I say last time because this is the end of a journey that we have been in for 15 Lord's Day mornings here in John chapter 6. And we come to these closing verses. We'll read beginning at verse 66 to the end. John six, sixty-six. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. May the Lord bless the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the conclusion of this chapter and of the two days that are uh, spoken of here in this chapter. In this snapshot of two eventful days in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen a drastic turn. The first day was a day of great popularity. This second day ended in a day of great desertion by multitudes. Today we would say that his favorability rating plummeted overnight. There was a dramatic shift in the momentum of the people from following him to turning away and leaving him. This multitude that he had miraculously fed with five little pieces of bread and two little fish who wanted him as their national king could not bear his spiritual emphasis upon a very different kind of kingdom than they envisioned and wanted. And so, as we saw last time, they said in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? They said in so many words, we're finished with him. Not only we, but we're going to discourage others as much as we can. Who could possibly bear to listen to this Jesus anymore? No one in their right mind would pay him any more attention. And so, as verse 66 says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. 
there is this general gathering of the Jews that evidently were not even committed to following him even superficially. But these who are called his disciples, not the twelve, but a bigger group that had at least in some measure followed him, followed him no more, went back. Went back to their old life and walked no more with him. And as I read this passage, it seems to me that the momentum on that day is much like the momentum of today. The momentum of today is certainly away from Christ more than toward him. And this is heartbreaking and tragic because it hasn't been that long when or since when the momentum in some way was more toward Christ in our national social life generally or at least maybe like these people at least some lip service paid to him as their master but now What do we see? Open hostility from an increasing number of people and sources in the world around us. And we see this open hostility from educators and media and big corporations and government and on and on. And I'll just say this here at the outset. Let us who continue to follow Christ not be discouraged by the reduction in numbers that is evident in our culture as a whole. Thank God there are places where believers gather together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and continue faithful to him. As we look at these verses before us today, let us be encouraged to faithfulness where the Lord has put us. So we come, first of all, to this probing question that Jesus puts to the twelve in verse 67. It says, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Picture this in your mind. Here are multitudes, hundreds, perhaps thousands. We don't know how many could crowd into the synagogue and no doubt many uh, scattered around outside trying to, to hear what was going on inside. Turning, walking away. Maybe some who are on the inside come out and and say to those on the outside, he's out of his mind. Turn around and go home. Don't listen to him anymore. And this spirit prevails among the multitude. And Jesus, surrounded by the twelve that he had chosen to be more full-time followers, who would later be called apostles, remain. 
And Jesus turns and looks at them and asks them this question. Will ye also go away? Now we might ask, why did he put this question? Did he need information? Well, I think we've seen abundant evidence here right in John chapter 6 that the divine nature of Christ knew all things. And he didn't ask this question for his own information. He did not ask out of ignorance. You remember earlier at the beginning of this chapter in verse 5, when Jesus lifted up his eyes, it says, and saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And here's this explanation. This he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Well, this, of course, is the, the, the divine mind and the divine knowledge of Christ that is perfect and, and all-reaching, omniscience. Again, in verse 64, we've seen it more recently. It says uh, that Jesus said, There are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him or who was going to betray him, who was about to betray him. <clears throat> So the Lord asked this question, obviously, for the benefit of these 12 disciples to make them search their souls. And let me just then make this application here, and we'll return to it at the end, God willing. But we need self-examination from time to time. Just as Jesus asks this question to provoke these 12 disciples to examine themselves, we likewise need to be provoked to examine our own hearts from time to time. And especially at a time when others are turning away. And we see their backs turned to us as they leave. Not just leaving us, but leaving Christ. You know... In the last few years, there have been several. You could name some names uh, of some fairly high-profile people who gave conferences, wrote books, and they utterly abandoned their faith. What do they call it? Um, uh, De-Christianizing or something along those lines. So sad. And such events as these ought to make each of us examine our own selves. A a, a deconversion, that's the term, isn't it? A deconversion. Have I been following the Lord simply because others are? Am I just following the crowd? Do I find safety in numbers, but when the numbers reduce, is my own foundation shaken and do I want to go with them in their departure seeing others leave on a large scale is a test to the faithful and it separates the wheat from the chaff it will either be devastating to our faith or else By God's grace, it will be strengthening to our faith. And that's what we see here in the case of Simon Peter. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. The Lord asks this question for the benefit of the souls of these 12 disciples. But I think something should also be said concerning the human nature of Christ. And though we often, and rightly so, emphasize his divine nature, knowing all things, is there not also something to be said concerning his human nature? And as a man, he desired friendship, companionship. He needed faithful friends. You see him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes them with him and he says, watch with me. Pray with me. And perhaps this question can be viewed both in terms of his divine nature that already knew the answer to this question and his human nature that desires fellowship and faithful friends. Now the question is this, will ye also go away? And uh, this is a challenging question to translate. There's a negative here. It's, are you all not wanting to go away? But I would especially point out the word will here. Sometimes in our English language, the word will is used simply as a future tense of what you will or shall do. But it is not a future tense here. It is a present tense. And the question is not Are you going to leave? But do you want to leave? Are you willing? Are you desiring? Are you wishing to leave? Like these others of the multitude. The Lord is putting the question to them concerning their desire. Because the desire is the father to the deed. And if they would avoid the deed of turning away from him, they must avoid the desire to do so in the first place. And that's what the Lord is addressing here. He's he's probing their motive at this moment. And he says, do you wish that you could leave? Even though you're still here and you, you remain and you haven't gone with the crowd, do you wish that you could? Are you envious of those who have turned their backs and are returning to their old life? Let us never underestimate the power of envy. In a way, that's what's under the surface here. Do you wish that you could be like these who are leaving Do you think it would be a better life, an easier life, less demanding, less difficult, less suffering, less persecution? If you went away now. Beloved, if the enemy of our souls can make us envious of the wicked, then he will eventually win the battle for our souls. Let us never be envious of those who walk away from Christ. 
the world around us earnestly wants us to envy them. And they try very hard to project this glamorous image that that will appeal to our remaining sin that we will want to copy them and be like them. They want to be envied. They want us to secretly wish to be among them and to be like them in all of their sinful pleasures. And that's why we have these warnings throughout the Old Testament. Be not envious against the workers of iniquity. Be not envious of the foolish when you see the prosperity of the wicked and so on. Don't be drawn into the trap of envying those who are enemies of Christ and the gospel. So, when you're on your way to church on Sunday morning and you see your neighbor or you meet someone on the road pulling their boat to the lake, don't envy them. Pity them because they're missing out on the best. And that illustration could be multiplied endless ways the the question that Christ asks of the 12 here and he asks of you and me today is where is your heart where is your desire where is your want let us never wish and want to follow those who are not following Christ When the momentum is flowing away from Christ, don't go with the flow. There's one old writer said, don't let the wind be in your back when it is in Christ's face. In other words, stand with him. Don't turn your back to him. Do you want to go away? Well, Peter makes an answer here. The Lord had asked this of all of them. It's you plural. Will ye also go away? But only one speaks up, and he's the natural leader of the disciples, as you know. Simon Peter answered him. He's the spokesman. He speaks for the rest. Lord... To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Let's just pause there. What's Peter saying here? Well, he answers Christ's question with a question of his own. And he doesn't expect an answer to this question. The answer is obvious. Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else is worth following? Who else is out there? Who else is there? As far as we're concerned, Lord, there are no options. It's you or no one. And this crowd that is 
fading into the distance, into the streets of Capernaum, is making a huge mistake. You are the only one who speaks the truth and has the words of eternal life. And we understand your words. You know, the complaint of the multitude had been, again in verse 60, that Jesus' words were hard words and hard sayings. But Peter says, we understand, at least we understand somewhat. And what we understand, we love and appreciate, and we find our souls attracted to. They are to us not hard words, but words of eternal life. And he's using the very terms that Jesus himself used. For example, in verse 63 at the end, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And Peter puts his little stamp of approval upon it. These are words of eternal life. Peter says, we find the truth that you speak irresistibly attractive to our souls. And Lord, the size of your following has nothing to do with our commitment to follow you at all cost. And as you hear Peter's words here, do they not resonate in your soul? If your heart is true toward God, they certainly resonate in your soul. Lord, to whom shall we go? Who compares to Christ? He is truly incomparable. There is no competition when it comes to him. Have you found it so? Do you say, yes, Lord, there's no one else to go to? Do you find him attracting to your soul like an electromagnet and that you cannot even think of leaving him. And you know that leaving him is to leave eternal life and to enter only into eternal death. This crowd that left on this day and quit following Christ, they thought that they were getting rid of, of one they did not need and that they were making a subtraction here so they could make an addition over there. Peter says, no, if we leave you, it's only subtraction with no addition. No place else to go. Leaving you, Lord, is is not an upgrade, it's a downgrade. Beloved, whatever difficulties we face with Christ, are far preferable to any pleasures that we enjoy without him. I remember years ago seeing a little gospel tract entitled, The Crowd May Be Wrong. And it gave many examples of how the prevailing opinion of people and, you know, scientists and so on at various points in human history were altogether wrong and finally proven wrong at the end. How often is the crowd wrong? Do not let 
the current moving away from Christ sweep you away. Eternal life with a few is better than eternal death with many. But Peter goes on and says more here in verse 69. He makes this glorious confession. And he speaks for all 12 of them. He says, we believe or literally have believed. Both verbs here in the perfect tense. We have believed and have known. (coughs) And of course, the implication is we still believe. And still know, and know for sure, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I would just point out something about the order here. Peter puts believing before literally knowing or being sure. And that is the order in which things work in the spiritual realm. Believing comes first. And then knowing. And then assurance. Oftentimes in earthly things, it operates in reverse. Or at least we expect it to operate in reverse. We want to know before we believe. But Peter rightly brings this commitment to believe Christ. Even if he doesn't understand everything that Christ is saying or had had just said here in the synagogue in Capernaum. But what he did understand, he was certain about. I would just make this application. Determined to believe Christ even before you understand him. If you wait to believe until you perfectly understand, you'll never believe because our minds are so small. We will never understand him fully. And that's to his credit. Well, Peter, again, says here in so many words, not only do we believe, but we know for sure. Peter is is speaking here of absolute confidence, certainty. He says, our minds are made up. There's no doubt whatsoever here with us. We're absolutely certain as to who you are. We have made a positive identification of you, Jesus. You are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Savior. And his term living God here is something of an echo of verse 57 where Jesus speaks of the living Father who sent me. Peter speaks in similar terms here. You're the son of the living God. He says, you're our Savior. You're the one who has come to earth for our salvation. In you we have found what our souls have longed for. You are the treasure, the priceless treasure that we cannot find anywhere else. And these are very similar to the words that he uses a little later in another scene 
near Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's similar to what Peter said in the book of Acts in chapter 4 when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, you're the only Savior. It's you or no one. And I want to ask you then today, is this your confession? Can you put Peter's words upon your lips in truth? Do you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? The Son of God come into this world as the Son of Man, the only mediator and redeemer. Is he the object of your trust? Is he the object of your love and affection, your commitment, your obedience? That's what it is to be a Christian. And happy are they who can give Peter's confession as their own. I urge you, don't leave this place today and don't give sleep to your eyes this night until you can say Christ is my Savior. I know Him. My trust is in Him. Now, we might wish that John chapter 6 had ended right there. On that high and glorious note of of a wonderful confession by Peter of the identity of Christ as the only Savior. <clears throat> but God knows what we need, and here's what he's given us. It might seem a little anticlimactic here, but Jesus asks another sobering question. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil. It's as if he says to Peter, Peter, you think you're speaking for the twelve, but you're not. Because there's one for whom you do not speak in your great confession. You can't help but wonder, after this wonderful confession, maybe Peter expected a pat on the back or to be commended in some way by the Lord. And that did occur in, in the later instance in Matthew 16. Blessed art thou, Simon, he said to him. But here, the Lord changes the, the, the tone so drastically with this question it says he answered them not just Peter but he's answering them all he's speaking to them all once again have not I chosen you you all twelve and one of you is a devil just a word here about the choosing that Jesus speaks of here this is not choosing unto salvation obviously because Peter was never really saved 
He just had the appearance for a while. The choosing here is not an inward choosing, we might say, but it's a choice unto being an outward disciple, being chosen to be in this group of the twelve, being chosen, we might say, to this office. The Lord certainly speaks differently over in chapter 13 when he says, I speak not of you all, for I know whom I have chosen. There he's speaking of being chosen unto salvation. He's speaking here of being chosen as a, a full-time follower. Have not I chosen you twelve, he says, and one of you is a devil. One of you is doing Satan's work or is about to do Satan's work. One of you will soon be an instrument in the hand of Satan to do the most devilish, evil deed imaginable. He would betray the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of his enemies to be crucified. And our Lord doesn't go into that detail here, but John in verse 71 gives sort of a postscript here and identifies this one by name as as John is writing this account after the fact, after it had all come to pass. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So Jesus says here in this very troubling question in verse 70, Even one of you twelve will eventually turn and go away like this multitude today. It won't happen today. It will happen later. And it certainly did. And I would just point out that the Lord puts this as a question. And at least... uh, the implication that we might draw from a question like this is he speaks as if it's no secret, as if it's something that should be known and is already known. Nevertheless, even as late as in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, the other 11 of the 12 did not suspect Judas, did they? Well, how did Jesus expect them to know, or how should they have known? Well, here's a little glimpse into the the mind of our Lord Jesus. He was so familiar with the Old Testament and so well-schooled, well-taught in the Psalms that he could put it as a rhetorical question here. We read one of those passages earlier in Psalm 41, verse 9, where he says concerning, uh, I mean, this is messianic, yea, mine own familiar friend, a man who was at peace with me outwardly, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And how the human mind of Christ was informed of all of this, we, we can only 
gifts. But I tend to think that as Jesus, in his years of preparation, was studying the scriptures, was the best student of the Old Testament that there ever was, read passages like this and realized that a very close associate would turn against him. And there are other passages like Psalm 55 where he says, It was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. And think of Psalm 109, which speaking of the enemies says, or the enemy says, let Satan stand at his right hand. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Of course, that's quoted in Acts chapter 1 with reference to Judas Iscariot. Our Lord could ask it in this way as something that ought to be known if they're familiar with the Psalms. Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. And that's exactly what we read over in chapter 13 where it says that shortly before the the, the disciples gathered in the upper room, (coughs) the devil put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. It says in verse 27 of that same chapter. So this is a very solemn ending of John chapter 6, isn't it? Why does this inspired account end in this rather anticlimactic way? Well, I would suggest just two obvious reasons, really. Number one, to warn Judas. Did Judas pay heed to the warning? Obviously not. But he is left without any excuse for his evil deed. And do we not admire the patience and long-suffering of Christ putting up for three and a half years of public ministry with Judas in his midst. And Jesus knows all along that he's the betrayer and the deceiver and that the devil will use him in a singular way. And yet, Jesus never publicly treated him any different than the others. He didn't call Peter or John aside and say, keep an eye on Judas. He's he's a thief. And he's going to do worse than that. No, 
Our Lord handled things in such a way that none of them suspected Judas until the very end. Imagine then what stress the Lord Jesus lived under and worked under. Can you imagine? Maybe on the job or in the family or neighborhood or something, you find yourself in a situation like this where you have to be very careful what you say and treat everyone the same and so on. Listen, Jesus knows all about that. We have no idea what kind of stress he endured with Peter or with, with Judas in the midst. But the, the second reason for this ending is to keep the eleven who are faithful from carelessness about their own souls, from presumption. If a man thinketh that he standeth, let him take heed lest he fall. And Jesus isn't rebuking Peter here. No doubt the the confession of Peter thrilled the, the soul of our blessed Savior. But he does want them to remember that without his sustaining grace, they will all fall. So you can imagine these other 11, the 11 faithful ones in their own minds asking, Lord, is it I? Just as they did later on in the upper room. And the lesson that we should learn, beloved, is to keep a careful watch over our own soul. Lord, is it I? I guess the only one that wasn't asking that question was Judas Iscariot. There is a place for true assurance, but there is never a place for assumption and presumption. We are never in a position where it is safe to coast spiritually because the current is always against Christ ultimately. It's always an uphill pull, we might say. And we have to keep pedaling. There's no coasting in the Christian life. We face resistance constantly from without and even from within. And Christ says to us, keep a careful watch over your desires. Are you wanting to go away? He's saying to us, don't pretend to be committed while you secretly wish to go with the crowd and be uncommitted. You know, that's, that's Judas's carried, isn't it? Perhaps he would have been happy to go away at this time, but he doesn't. He hangs on for another year or so. So this, this great chapter leaves us searching our own hearts. Let us not be content to be an outward follower of Christ, but an inward follower. 
being numbered with the faithful does not make you faithful. Any more than Judas being in the twelve made him a true disciple. Even continuing on a while after many have departed is not a sure mark of grace any more than it was for Judas. And the fact is, none of us can speak for anyone else. Peter thought he was speaking for Judas, but he wasn't really speaking for Judas, was he? There's an individual responsibility here to search our own hearts. And so let us say with Peter, Lord, it's you or no one. We believe and know for sure that you are the only Savior. So I want to leave you with these questions today. Can you say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Is Christ all in all to you? And can you say with Paul in the New Testament, I know whom I have believed. Is he your Savior? Are you his disciple? 